Well, I'm excited. I have a new microphone. I don't know if you noticed all the, the constant tweaking I'm doing, but I'm excited I don't have to do that anymore. And my uh, new microphone on the box, it says Thor's Hammer. So if you sense a little extra power this morning, it could be the Holy Spirit, could be Thor's Hammer. We'll see. I hope that y'all fared the wrath of Ian, okay? How, who, who here is still without power? Raise your hand. All right, Isaac in the booth. Yep. So those are the people you need to invite over for a warm shower or hot coffee or whatever. Um, Yeah, at the church, you can see we fared very well um, outside of the casualty that is the fence around the children's playground that we hope to have back up and running before too long. How many of you were here when uh, Hurricane Charlie hit? All right, so a fair number of you. So this was a a rain event that was more of a wind event. And I I was thinking this week as I was working on this message uh, about Charlie, and we were all without power for a long time after that. And I remember the first Sunday after Charlie, churches had to decide, you know, almost all of us without power, were we going to have services or not? without air condition. And, uh, and different churches made different decisions and they're free to make their different decisions. Personally, I, it would be hard to ever look a Cuban pastor in the eye who never has air condition and tell him that we canceled worship because of air condition. So my motivations are purely, largely my own insecurity. But what was interesting is that no small amount of disunity and grumbling came about on that Sunday because there were people who who wanted to worship, who who felt like we needed to worship, and they were upset that their church was not worshiping. And then on the other side, I can remember a pastor who will go unnamed bragging about the fact that he, he preached multiple services with no air condition. He was sweating up a storm on the verge of a heat stroke, but he did it. And he wanted everybody to know that he did it. So some of you are probably wondering, where in the world are you going with this, Jim? Well, it's central actually to our text today because our text is about unity in the church. And anytime I can use a hurricane for an illustration or an example of disunity and not politics or COVID, I'm going to take it. And Clark, I thought, did a great job last week walking us through the decision at the Jerusalem Council. If you... If you didn't hear that sermon, I really would recommend going back and listening to it because outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and Pentecost, this, that council was the most important thing that had happened in early church history up to that point. Because they were, they were trying to figure out as a whole church, leaders from all the different churches came together, do these new Gentile Christians have to become Jewish first? Do they have to take on the Mosaic law and specifically circumcision, or can they just be let in? And so they gathered, and it was, it was clear from that meeting, they decided, no, no one has to become Jewish first. You, the only thing required to become a Christian is faith in Jesus. Repent of your sins, put your faith in Jesus, and that is how you become a Christian. So note, circumcision is not required. Other aspects of the Jewish culture and law are not required. And you have to imagine that came at a, as a huge relief to the men back in Antioch. But the decision at this point in, in this passage has been made. It was made by all the church leaders. And now what we're looking at is this letter that they send to Antioch and two other churches in, in that, in that, um, in that re- region. And, and it, what's interesting to me when I started reading it this week, I, and I've, I've wondered this before, but I've never really Go, like dived into this passage the way I did this week. But I started wondering why, the whole meeting was about the law and circumcision. Why are those two things not mentioned in this letter? 
You know, they send this letter and don't even address the main thing that they were talking about. And the reason is because the decision has been made. This letter is coming after the decision, and this letter is aimed at, at providing unity and stability to this new, fragile, mixed church. So... I want to look at this letter, and I kind of just, I want to, it's going to be a little shorter this morning because of the new member installation we have, but I want to look at the cause of the disunity and then the cure for the disunity. So first, the cause. The challenge to church unity in this situation was that the Gentile Christians are doing things that are causing the Jewish Christians to want to separate from them. So they're largely cultural in nature. You might remember... um, in Galatians chapter 2, Paul recounts what was going on. These, we talked about a little bit two weeks ago. These men from Jerusalem, led by James, they came. They called themselves the circumcision party. They did believe you had to become Jewish first. You could not. Some of them would even have gone so far as to say you can't become a Christian without taking on the Mosaic law and becoming Christians. So they come to Antioch, which was doing fine until they got here. And they would not even have table fellowship with these Gentile Christians. They wouldn't eat with them. And if that wasn't bad enough, Paul tells us that then Peter joined them and then even Barnabas was led astray. And so there was this big division in the church in Antioch to which Paul stood up publicly, called them all hypocrites and said that you are not not in step with the conduct of the gospel. This was a big deal for Paul. So now this issue has been settled, but the the leaders in Jerusalem, they wisely, I think, see that this this church is still fragile. This church is still divided, even if the main issue has been solved. Again, this is around 49 AD, so this is very early. This is, everything's new. This whole mixed church thing is new. And I think in this letter, we see a lot of wisdom. They, They know that even though the main thing has been settled, this whole thing could still blow up. It could fall apart. I mean, what if they agree on how you're saved, but they still separate over these different cultural divisions? What does that mean for the faith of these new Gentile believers? What does it mean for the fellowship in these churches? What does it mean for the spread of the gospel around the world? The implications, even though the main thing has been settled, the implications on the future of the church, if the cultural divisions are not addressed, are large. And this is actually still very important to us 2,000 years later on the other side of the, the, the earth. To my knowledge, no one in here is tempted by pagan worship. Maybe, maybe there's somebody there this speaks directly to in that way. But the church as a whole is still threatened by the heart of this issue. I remember Angela and my first Christmas in Italy. We were newly married and we bought a Christmas tree and it arrived on a scooter, which was funny. He was driving the scooter and he had the tree attached to his back. And we set up our little tree in our little den and we decorated it. And not long after that, we had uh, an Italian Christian friend over for dinner and she walked into our house and her eyes got really big. And I immediately could tell something's wrong. I said, what's, what's the problem? She said, Protestants in Italy do not celebrate Christmas. This is a pagan holiday. It was imported by the Catholic Church. You cannot celebrate this holiday. And I'm just looking at her. Uh, and she said, well, at least you don't have a manger scene. That's the really big no-no. And I was like, you mean like that one over there on that table? <laughs> and she just, I remember she put her, hand, her head in her hands and just exhaled. Now, to be fair to her, her position is the dominant position of Protestant Christianity until about 150 years ago. 
But this is a, there's a cultural disagreement that did cause significant amounts of disagreement and separation in that context. Now, in our context, we may still have some disagreements on how we do certain holidays, but we have other issues, cultural issues, that have historically separated and divided our churches. Probably alcohol is a very large one, especially if you're from the South. I, I wasn't, you know, growing up in Orlando, it was a little more Southern than it is now, but I didn't know Deep South until I married into it. And in Angeles County in North Mississippi, when we got married, it was, uh, alcohol was illegal to sell in the county and illegal to possess in city limits. I mean, so this, these are the most conservative laws in the United States here. And I remember trying to tell my sweet mom that there, there can be no alcohol at our wedding. I mean, there's, it's illegal. To which, aiming to please, she said, Jim, we, we're the guests. You tell that family that if we can't have alcohol, that beer and wine is fine. <laughs> like, no, you don't understand. Nothing fermented in any way. And then a little bit of time after our wedding, there were campaigns to change these laws. And so you started seeing these signs pop up that would say, you know, on certain, all over town, they'd say, for progress, for progress, these blue signs. And then after that, about a couple of weeks, you started seeing signs that were red pop up for families. Because if you're for alcohol, you're clearly against families. And it became, it wasn't just this political thing. Churches were being divided over it. Pastors were speaking into it. People were shifting churches because of it. Again, this is not that long ago. We haven't been married that long. So, you know, that's not something I sense is dividing us a whole lot here in our context. In our context, I think our divisions happen largely in the arena of politics and race. We've had people leave the church because we're not politically conservative enough. We've had people leave the church because we're uh, too conservative. We, as elders, have sat in exit interviews, which we want to do. We want people to leave well. If you ever leave, we want to meet with you and pray with you and help you find another church. And we've had dear families on both sides of these issues leave, leave, and it's hard. So I say all this to say this is pertinent to the church. The unity that this letter is intended to provide is very important for the church at large to listen to and understand. So what is the cure for disunity? In short, in this letter, the cure they offer is to ask the Gentiles, the Gentile Christians, to abstain from things that they are largely free to do for the sake of unity in this church in hopes that they would all show each other charity and be able to move on and eat together and fellowship together as they do it. So the church in Jer Jerusalem, they want the church in Antioch to know that those men with James, when they came, they were not sent by us. We do not agree with them. So they, they decide when Barnabas and Saul return, they're going to send Judas and Silas to go with them as people who are sent and do represent the church in Jerusalem. And so I'm going to read once again the, the main core of this passage, the, the letter that they, that they bring with them starting in verse 23. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are, who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good 
good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you will abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual morality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. And I love the tone of this letter, our beloved Barnabas and Paul. I mean, they're communicating. These are your church leaders. We love them. We support you. We are unified at that level in the church. And they acknowledge that these men, they have risked their lives for the sake of the gospel in the name of Jesus. We value what you were doing there in the church in, the Antioch, in, the church in Antioch and these others, but primarily Antioch because that's where this main division came from and happened. And then in verse 28, they get to the heart of the issue. We are not going to ask from you a greater burden. Only these four things. Don't eat meat sacrificed to idols uh, or bleeding or strangled or engage in sexual morality. That's it. Those are the four things that we don't want you to do. Well, those four things raise three very important questions. <laughs> so first, why did they pick these four things? Because it can seem on one level like they've removed one Old Testament burden and then heaped on at least three new ones. So, I mean, if that's what's going on, how has the issue been solved at all? I don't think that's what's going on. All four of these things you can tie back to pagan worship, to pagan worship practices that happen there. Now, of course, sexual immorality, we know all over Scripture, that is wrong in any context. But it seems here even that is tied to some very specific pagan worship practices going on. They're zeroing in on that here. And they would have known that this whole mixed church thing, Jews and Gentiles together, this is new, this is fragile. So, so we need to come in in a different way so that they can, that the Gentile Christians can love the Jewish Christians, understanding that some of this is just too new for them. Some of this is going to be too much. Let's give these, these Jewish Christians time to adjust to these major cultural changes that have happened in the church. I, I read a sermon by Derek Thomas, um, a PCA pastor, when he preached on this passage. And he said, there were certain pagan practices involving food, especially that would, that would be a cause of enormous offense to Christian Jews. And rather than stick to your essential principles of liberty here, the letter is asking them to refrain and abstain for the sake of a greater good, that good being the unity of the brethren. Question two, does this mean that the Bible disagrees with itself? Because here they're saying, church in Antioch, abstain from eating food, eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols. 1 Corinthians 8, Romans 14, Paul says, you're free, free to eat this, these food, free to do these things. So is the Bible disagreeing with itself? Absolutely not. That's not what's going on. The book of Acts is not the roadmap that the church often wants it to be. <laughs> you know, we, we, want, we look at, at Acts as if it is prescriptive to everything that we're supposed to do today. It's not prescriptive in many places. Some places it is. In many places, it's descriptive. Luke, the historian, is saying this is what happened, not how it should always happen in every case. Misunderstanding the, the book of Acts as a roadmap for, for the whole church is what, if I'm honest, has, has, has influenced the Pentecostal movement in the way that it has. So it's descriptive. It's not prescriptive, especially in this case. And this letter sent from the leaders in Jerusalem to these three churches around Antioch 
It is very much for us, but it's not to us, not directly to us. These commands that they're giving, they're temporary commands. They're based on a context. They're saying, hey, Gentile Christians, for a short period of time, would you abstain from these things for the sake of unity in the church as we Jewish Christians get used to living in an entirely new culture? Question three, does this then apply to us at all? Do I need to start cooking my steaks a lot better than, than I, more well done than I do? Do I need to ask publics how these chickens were killed? No, that's not what's going on because, again, this letter was to a specific group of people for a short period of time, again, in specific circumstances. And, and yes, we're all to abstain from sexual morality and avoid pagan worship, okay? <laughs> yes. But... When you get down to foods that we eat, because they're talking, these leaders are addressing issues of church unity, these are not commands for the whole church. We're not constrained to abstain from eating these foods in, in, in this kind of way. Uh, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4, says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is there is no God but one. So who cares what's happened to the meat? Because these idols, they're not even real. But with this issue, and I feel like this passage, clearly in Paul's mind, five verses later, he goes on to caution, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. There's the heart of the issue. This is what we have in the church come to call the weaker brother issue. There are some, you know, Paul says, with weaker consciences and those with stronger consciences need to be willing to abstain from anything that causes the faith of, the, of another uh, brother or sister to, be, to stumble. So, so you see this very much, this passage applies to us principally at a heart level, even if it, it's not applying in the way where we're following it to the letter, following it to the T. So an obvious example to circle back to alcohol if, if we have a brother or sister in our lives and they really struggle with alcohol, then we should be absolutely willing to not drink around them, to cause them to stumble in any kind of way. That should be a joy that we get to serve them in that way. We do have an interesting, more modern historical parallel to what's going on here. When, when European and American missionaries would go to places like Hawaii or South America, the Amazon, uh, a, a common practice because of the common practice with these new Christians would be to have them embrace European and American standards of modesty in the way that they dress. Now, we can all agree certain parts of our body need to be covered, yes. But they would have these new brothers and sisters in the Amazon wearing long sleeves, long pants, even women wearing bonnets. Because the reason it's so interesting and ironic here is because you have these missionaries like the Jewish Christians who had a longer standing spiritual foundation, yet they were the weaker brother in this area, and specifically in the modern example in this area of, of modesty and the way that they dress. So what Paul and the whole Jerusalem council they want is they want Christian unity. And when I say Christian unity, I'm not just talking about a church that doesn't fight, okay? Because you can... You can have a church that doesn't fight, but you're still not unified at a heart level the way that Paul wants us to be unified. And he's also not talking about a church that agrees on everything. I mean, if that were the case, he wouldn't be asked, the council wouldn't be asking 
the Gentile Christians to abstain, if they wanted to agree on everything, they would be putting the Jewish Christians in their place. But that, that's not the heart here. The heart is unity, not agreement on cultural issues or secondary issues. If, if total agreement on all issues were the goal, Paul in Romans 14 would not have written this. As for the one who is weak, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may be eating while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And if God has welcomed him or her, we should be welcoming as well. So the heart of Christian unity, it doesn't necessarily have to do with agreement. It has to do with identity. It has to do with our core identity in Jesus Christ, who we are as new creations in Jesus Christ. We should identify so supremely with Christ as our new identity that it causes all our other competing identities to pale in comparison. These competing identities of nationality, ethnicity, politics, education, social status, how we school our kids, whatever sports team we follow, whatever it is, all those things, while they still will be important to us, should pale in comparison compared to our new identity in Christ. We should be willing to let go of some of these things because we are just so united in the identity that matters most. I know a pastor who every year that his college football team would beat their in-state rivals, he would wear a tie with the logos of his team, and it would fly all over me. If you know Southern culture, college football is a major competing identity, and this guy was being so unloving by flaunting this competing identity in, in, in front of everybody. He was being unloving. He was failing at the main thing this church is wanting to accomplish, and it became known that if his team won that year, they would, like, people would not go to church. <laughs> they didn't want to go to church and see this pastor fail to love them well, and it flew all over me. Now, you won't have that problem here, not just because my team lost yesterday. I would not do something like that even if we won, and we've been bad long enough to where I've just gotten used to it. But to bring this a little closer to home, you know, I think if, if we're honest with ourselves, we can see our competing identities in what we post on social media. You know, when, when we post the two biggest categories right now, I'd say politics, maybe, maybe three, politics, race, and let me say just politics and sports. And especially, especially if we do it in mean and condescending ways. Now, if you're running for office, if you're a politician, or if you have some sort of really niche, huge social media following, there is wiggle room here, but that's wiggle room that has to be navigated very delicately. For the most of us, we're never going to change someone's mind <laughs> when we post to our little region of social media. We're not. So then we ask ourselves, why am I really posting this thing? Is, is, there, an, is there a competing identity fueled by my own self-righteousness that I'm just signaling to everybody around me that I really need to grow in this area of understanding my identity in Christ? And I don't think it's a stretch to say that our culture today should and does struggle with this more than any other culture that has ever existed, 
And I don't think that's a stretch at all to say it like that because our culture was founded on personal rights, founded at a deep level. And I'm thankful for that part of our culture, but we have to see how that influences the ways that we approach laying down our rights for unity and weaker brothers and sisters. You know, the Christians I've met from parts of the world like China, North Korea, they, they don't struggle with giving up their rights the way that we do because nothing in their culture has reinforced that. And if anything, these oppressive regimes ironically have prepared them well for the Christian life of constantly, willingly laying down our rights for the sake of the gospel and the unity of the church. We, on the other hand, we sense that our personal rights are being affected or threatened in any way, our natural tendency, most of us, is that our defenses immediately go up because we're trained that way. But this phrase that you see over and over again in the New Testament, in Christ, you also see it with Christ, in Christ, is at the core of how this kind of unity, this laying down our rights, this unity in the church is accomplished. Because being in Christ means that what is what is actually true of Jesus is now declared to be true of all of us who believe in him. So we are buried with Christ, which means we have died to our sins. We have, we have died to our, our old selves. There is no more love, deep love of that sin, and there's no consequence for that sin because we have died to those things with Christ. We are raised with Christ when we believe. We are raised to walk in, as new creations. We are hidden in Christ which means that we are clothed in his righteousness. And when we sin, and we will, God looks at us as if we are every bit as righteous as Jesus himself because we're hidden in Christ's righteousness. And so God's not looking down on us in judgment for what we've done. He looks at us, even in our heaviest moments of grieving our own sin. And to quote our dear friend Rob Farnsley, he looks at us and all he sees is the apple of his eye because we're hidden in Christ's righteousness. And our raising isn't just to a new life now. One day we will be raised in a bodily resurrection in the same way that Jesus was. All of this is true because we are in Christ. And that should affect the draw that our competing identities have on our lives. I was talking about this week with John Ellis and he sent me this great quote. Uh, from Jamie Dunlop in his book, The Compelling Community. He says, we as Christians, sorry, (laughs) we are Christians. And so as an urban American of the professional class, I now have more in common with my working class rural Sudanese brother in Christ than I do with my own non-Christian blood brother. I mean, being in Christ, it changes everything about who we are and why we're here. Deeply knowing that we are in Christ, that that is our true identity. That is the cure to our divisions. We won't agree on everything. It, it isn't, being in Christ wasn't designed for us to agree on everything here on this life. It means that we are going to understand our true identity. And because of that, our secondary and tertiary competing identities. We're just going to hold those more loosely. And we're going to do it not because we have to, but because we want to. Because we're so thankful for this new identity and we want unity in the church. And I love how the early Christians in Antioch received this news. They didn't complain, okay, we'll give up our rights and our freedoms for you Jewish Christians. 
Quite the contrary. Verse 31. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And ultimately, Christian unity accomplishes more than just us getting along and fellowshipping. Because Jesus says somehow... When we're unified, the world sees something about God. When we have this kind of unity in our main identity as in Christ, that communicates something to a lost world in a way that does make them interested, desirous, and even give their lives to Jesus, making him their greatest hope, their chief identity too. This is exactly what Jesus prayed. And I'll finish with this in John 17. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. May this be true of Orlando Grace Church. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful personally, that, that it does feel like a season of unity and peace here. I'm deeply thankful for that. And I pray that you would just solidify deep in our hearts who we are in Christ Jesus, that, that we may be able to see competing identities and see division arising and know, know what you feel about that. God, if there's any division in this room right now that I'm not aware of, I pray that you would convict us that we would seek out unity. Whether we're the cause of the division or somebody has something against us, we know from the Sermon on the Mount that we are to, to lay our sacrifice down and go and resolve those things. God, may that be true here. We ask this in the power of your Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.